Wednesday, December 19th, 2012, episode number 30 of the Football Nation Today podcast with Alex Reamer on footballnation.com. Episode number 30, that's right, a landmark episode of the Football Nation Today podcast hosted by yours truly, Alex Reamer, published every Wednesday on footballnation.com, and for your downloading convenience in the iTunes store, please subscribe to the Football Nation Today podcast in the iTunes store if you have yet to do so. Big show coming up this week, we are down to the nitty gritty, the final two weeks of the 2012 NFL regular season. And the AFC and NFC playoff pictures are beginning to take shape. Now, the AFC playoff picture, way more settled right now than the NFC playoff picture is. We're going to spend a lot of time today looking at which teams helped themselves, which teams hindered themselves heading into the final few weeks of the regular season in regards to playoff positioning, playoff seeding, and all that. So a lot of big thoughts there, breaking down the big 49ers and Patriots game from this past Sunday night and what it says about both teams, both teams, of course, at the top of their respective conferences, looking at the final wildcard spots in each league, what in the world to make of the New York Giants. Last week on the show, I proclaimed the Giants showed once again why they're the best team in the NFC. Well, eh, after they put 50-plus points up on the Saints, they get shut out by the Atlanta Falcons, losing by 30-plus points to them. So what do we make of the Giants? Well, Break all that down in more Insights Edition of the Football Nation Today podcast. And oh yes, we'll also laugh a little bit at the New York Jets because oh, I couldn't stop laughing Monday night after that horrific game against the Titans. Uh, but before we get started today with the meat and potatoes of the show, a couple of pieces of housekeeping, one of them far more trivial than the other one. First of all, the trivial one, uh, I will be away next week, Christmas week, so there will be no addition of Football Nation today. The next show, episode number 31, will come at you in just two weeks on Wednesday, January the 2nd of 2013. So that's right. Episode number 31 will come at you in two weeks on Wednesday, January 2nd. We'll recap week 17 of the NFL and, of course, spend most of our time looking ahead to Wild Card Weekend, one of the best sports weekends of the year with four terrific NFL postseason matchups. So no show next week. Due to the holiday, we'll be back at it in two weeks on Wednesday, January 2nd to look ahead to the postseason. Big, big times indeed. We've been waiting all year for that. Uh, But also, the second piece of housekeeping, much more serious. Do want to take a moment to send our thoughts and well wishes to all those in Newtown, Connecticut. Uh, We're choosing to live in our sports bubble here today on Football Nation today because once you start going down that path, uh, there's no turning back. You can't transition into anything else so we're choosing to live in our sports bubble here for the next half hour to 45 minutes but that does not mean our thoughts and well wishes aren't with those in newtown connecticut they most certainly are we're going to pause here for a moment of silence for the uh, 26 victims the uh, shooter killed at sandyuk elementary friday morning and then we'll get into the football it's football nation today back after this So welcome back. Again, just you can't start thinking about that or it's it's impossible, at least for me, to 
think about anything else, really. Uh, just my goodness. Um, moving onwards, though, the best we can, the NFC playoff picture. We're going to start with the NFC because it's far more complicated than the AFC. And then also in the first down segment where we look at the biggest on-field NFL stories of the past week, we'll also do our fair share of mocking the uh, New York Jets because I think that is needed as well. Uh, the NFC playoff picture, though, uh, one thing is for fairly, is, is fairly for certain there. The Falcons will be the number one seed. They defeated the Giants 34 to nothing last Sunday. And again, with only one loss, they have the inside track for the number one seed in the conference. Um, they played Detroit and Tampa Bay to close out their season. Atlanta would essentially have to lose out to both of those teams, and that's just not going to happen. Uh, what a game, though, for the Falcons against the Giants. I mean, they've been a one-loss team virtually all season long. Uh, they played spectacularly well, but... You know, I'm not sure if the Falcons induced a lot of fear in a lot of people for whatever reason. Well, my goodness, they certainly walked the Giants last Sunday. The defense had a big day. Asante Samuel on the first play from scrimmage with that interception, uh, jumping a route, uh, a great play there by Samuel. Still a big-time playmaker at this stage in his career. Thomas Deku had an interception as well. Uh, the total defense on a big day, forcing turnovers, uh, pressuring the quarterback, Eli Manning. Uh, getting some interceptions, doing what the Giants defense is supposed to do when they're clicking, right? You know, forcing turnovers, really forcing the issue. Uh, Matt Ryan had a big day. You saw the evolution of the Falcons offense on full display last weekend. Uh, the 40-yard touchdown pass to Julio Jones, Roddy White, Tony Gonzalez caught a touchdown as well. Um, the Falcons offense, we've heard all season about the evolution of it how they've evolved to be more of a passing-oriented offense, just how much more dynamic they are this year than in previous seasons. And you saw that on display on Sunday against the vaunted Giants defense. Uh, no match at all for the Falcons and Matt Ryan and his cast of characters. Um, the thing with the Falcons, though, is, and the reason why, even after this win against the Giants, they're not receiving as much publicity as the San Francisco 49ers or even the Green Bay Packers, is because they still haven't won in the playoffs. Matt Ryan is 0-3 in the postseason, and it may sound silly because from wire to wire this year, the Falcons have been the best team in the NFC and maybe the best team in all of football, but until they do it in the postseason, until they win a playoff game and show they have taken that next step forward, uh, I think some people will still view them as paper tigers. Now, I'm not sure if that's right, but... Your past track record at this stage uh, has a lot to do with how people perceive you. Because I look at the Giants, who are on the opposite side of that coin. I mean, they were a complete disaster on Sunday. And with that loss, they will not win the NFC East unless they get some help at 8-6. and six. Uh, The Redskins, yes, the Washington Redskins currently lead the division. And if they or the Dallas Cowboys win out, one of those two teams will take the NFC East. The Redskins, the Redskins play the Eagles and then the Cowboys. The Cowboys play the Saints before they travel to Washington to take on the Redskins. Uh, obviously, the Redskins have a bit of an easier task there taking on Philadelphia. Looked like they quit months ago uh, versus the Cowboys who have to take on the Saints who could still give them a formidable matchup. Uh, if the Giants went out, they will make the postseason. They just won't win in division without some help. They'll get one of the wildcard berths in the NFC. They finish up at Baltimore, which doesn't look like that tough of a game anymore. I will certainly talk about the Ravens a bit later on. We look at the AFC, and then they close out against the Eagles as well. Um, 
if the Giants went out, they're guaranteed a wild card berth. In order for them to win the division now, they can't have one of the Redskins or Cowboys win out. So essentially, they need one of the Redskins or Cowboys to lose this upcoming week because, of course, they play each other in Week 17 in a matchup that could possibly decide the NFC East. So definitely a lot at stake in the final week of the season for both of those clubs. Um, but, you know, back to my point about how past performance, especially this time of year, really dictates how we perceive you, you know, as a football team. And you talk about the Falcons and how well they've played and how well they played last week, but how some still view them as paper Tigers because of the lack of postseason track record. Look at the Giants. I mean, a lot of people, and I'm included in this, discount what we see from the Giants and kind of excuse it because of their past postseason performance. I mean, we ignore their problems in the secondary. That secondary has been a weak point on that defense all season long, they can't cover. I mean, the highlight that stands out in my mind, or I guess a low light if you're talking about it from the Giants' perspective, is uh, that game against Cincinnati a couple of weeks ago. Uh, A.J. Green completely blowing by cornerback Corey Webster. Uh, Webster just standing there, completely gave up on the play. That cannot happen. Uh, this is a secondary that can't cover anybody. And you saw the Falcons eat them up with Gonzalez, White, and Julio Jones last Sunday. So we ignore the problems from the secondary. We ignore Eli Manning, who gets them in deficits, early deficits, and plays rather inconsistently for somebody who many, myself included, regard as an elite quarterback in this league now. Uh, it's just so inconsistent on a weekly basis. This is a team that went into San Francisco and whipped the Niners. They whipped the Packers. They put 50-plus points up on the Saints just two weeks ago. But then this is also a team that's, that gets crushed by Cincinnati, crushed by Atlanta. They lost to Pittsburgh. They've lost to the Eagles. Yes, the wretched Eagles have even beaten the Giants this season. Uh, you just don't know what you're going to get with this team on a week-to-week -week basis. And if this were any other football team, we'd be criticizing the hell out of them for their inconsistencies. But because it's the Giants, and they've won two Super Bowls in the past handful of years, and in both occasions they entered the playoffs as a wild card, we say, ah, they just got to get to the dance. You know, as Bill Parcells said, just get into the tournament. That's all the Giants need to do. And I kind of still believe that, even though they got killed. In a football sense, of course, by the Falcons on Sunday. They got crushed would be the better word to use. I'm sorry. Um, but absolutely demolished. And yet we excuse it. It's just, it's a very, it's a double standard. And I'm not sure how right it is, but that's just, that's just what it is. This stage in the NFL season, your past performance does matter. Even more than your present performance in a lot of regards. And I think the way we perceive the Falcons and Giants uh, is a big, is a great symbol of that. So who in the NFC East, uh, if I were a betting man, and I most certainly am not, I would bet on the Redskins. I would. Because I think the Redskins have a better chance to win out than the Cowboys because, number one, they have an easier schedule. That last game against Dallas is in Washington. And also, I think they got a huge, huge win last Sunday. Really a trap game for them against the Cleveland Browns, especially because Robert Griffin III was on the shelf. Kirk Cousins got the start at quarterback, and... Mike Shanahan and Kyle Shanahan implemented the bootleg offense. They pretty much ran that all day long. And Cousins flourished and read the, led the Redskins to that victory. Uh, Washington's had a number of big wins this season. Uh, that Thanksgiving Day win at Dallas, the Monday night win a couple weeks ago against the Giants. 
the win with Kirk Cousins against Cleveland last week, who have been playing better as of late. Uh, definitely a number of big wins for the Redskins this season. The defense has improved as the year has progressed as well. Uh, they've shown me a lot this season. No doubt about that. Count me on that Redskins bandwagon. Uh, count me off the Chicago Bears bandwagon, who lost to the Packers last week at Soldier Field. And after starting the season 7-1, they're now 8-6 and six, and on the outside of the NFC playoff picture looking in. Now, the Bears can win out and still miss the playoffs. They actually need help. They need the Giants to lose one of their two remaining games and win out to make the playoffs. So, dire straits now for the Bears. And you look at what happened here. Well, I think it's 7-1. and one. They weren't as good as their record indicated, obviously. I think the defense, which was so great earlier in the season, kind of clouded a lot of the offensive problems on this team. Because, yeah, the defense with Julius Peppers and Charles Tillman and Lance Briggs, and I know Brian Urlacher's long in the tooth, but still, he's out there. Uh, with all the names on this Bears defense and all the turnovers they're able to uh, force earlier in the season and all the points they scored, it really clouded a lot of the issues they have on the offensive side of the football. And it's still a good defense, but you just can't count on your defense to win you games week after week. Eventually, you knew that Bears defense was going to regress a little bit back into the pack. They were not going to put up seems like every week they're scoring for they're responsible for 14 to 17 points. I mean, really, whether it be pick sixes, fumbles, uh, given the offense, great field position deep inside the red zone. You just knew it wasn't going to, con to continue. Excuse me. And over the past month or so, they've certainly regressed a little bit to the norm, not criticizing them. You had to expect that to happen. No defense could keep up that pace. So more pressure goes to the offense and the offense just isn't good enough. And I've said it before, I'll say it a million times again. Jay Cutler is not a winning quarterback in this league. He has the arm, he has all of the raw tools, but he doesn't have the brain. He doesn't have the savviness to win at the QB position, uh, as evidenced by his terrible interception he threw last Sunday. That throw intended for Devin Hester, the double pump fake, a terrible, awful, awful, awful. Uh, the game calling, the play calling is not imaginative enough. Uh, I knew that from the Monday night game about a little over a month ago now against San Francisco. Battle of the backups, Colin Kaepernick versus Jason Campbell. One team comes out throwing, the Niners. One team hands the ball to the running back and sends him up the middle, right into the teeth of that San Francisco defense. Chicago, one team wins, San Francisco. One team loses, Chicago. It's as simple as that. Uh, so an unimag uh, unimaginative offensive play calling schemes. Um, and on offense, they just don't have the secondary players. Matt Forte is a very good running back. Brandon Marshall is one of the best receivers in the game, for my money, on the field. Um, but they don't have the secondary pieces. I mean, look at a guy like Alfred Jeffries, catches a touchdown pass in the end zone last Sunday, but then gets called for a horrible, blatant offensive pass interference. I mean, Jeffries pushed off the Packers cornerback. I mean, you can't do that. You can't push off. A corner? Come on, that's offensive pass interference at its most basic level. Um, the Bears have Arizona and Detroit left on the schedule, so they can easily win out and finish the year at 10-6, and six. but they once had control of their own destiny, and now they don't, because even if they do win out, they still need help from the Giants, uh, who, 
By the way, their schedule doesn't look as difficult as, as it once did with the Ravens playing the way they're currently playing. Minnesota had a big win last week as well, but like the Bears, they need a lot of help. They need to win out, and that's a tough task for them because they've traveled. To, they face Houston and Green Bay to close out, so I'm not as confident in the Vikings winning out as I am in the, uh, in the Bears, and even so, the Vikings, like the Bears, need the Giants to lose as well. Um, but... The Vikings are an interesting case study because, of course, I think they're uh, proof of how far you can get with an offense predicated solely on a running back instead of a quarterback in today's NFL. And how far you can get is, you know, 9-7, and 10-6. and six. I think 9-7 and seven is more likely than 10-6, and six, but, you know, and that's not bad. But, you know, it's as far as you can get with a running back solely predicated on – with an offense, excuse me, solely predicated on a running back. And Peterson's having – Arguably the best season a running back has ever had in the NFL. And still, that gets you in a 9-7, and 10-6 and six at best, and probably 9-7 and seven missing the playoffs, which is fine. But, I mean, nowhere near where an elite quarterback could take you. And, again, Peterson isn't just elite. He's having the best season a running back's ever had in the history of the league. And his team very likely will still miss out in the postseason. So that's just a further case study to prove what kind of league this has become. We'll talk about Peterson and his record in the third down segment or big up slowdown. Don't worry, we'll serve the Peterson people. Um, closing out the NFC, I want to focus on two teams in the NFC West. The Seahawks and 49ers, who of course, face each other this Sunday night in Seattle, a big Sunday night football matchup. Um, the Seahawks remain in good shape with their win last week, even with Brandon Browner out. Uh, Richard Sherman's suspension is still pending, but he's going to play this Sunday against San Francisco uh, with a win. The Seahawks will clinch a playoff berth, and with a win, they could send a really big message as well to the 49ers. Uh, they have the second-best defense in the league, but the amazing thing to me about the Seahawks is, is how their offense has evolved. Uh, Marshawn Lynch is a, is a truck, all right? I mean, this guy is a beast. Unbelievable. I mean, to I love watching Lynch run. The way he just bulldozes defensive players. What a gifted physical, tough, talented runner. Uh, one of my favorite players in the league, Marshawn Lynch. Absolutely love him. But, like the Vikings have shown us, even if you have one of the best running backs in the league, and again, the Vikings don't just have one of the best running backs in the league, they have a running back who's having one of the best seasons in the history of football, that's still not good enough to get you to the postseason. In addition to your running back, and the Seahawks certainly have the running back in Lynch, you need a quarterback. You need a diverse offense. And the Seahawks have the quarterback. You go back to training camp with Pete Carroll, who I think is a goofball and a clown. But you know what? We talk a lot about what his counterpart Jim Harbaugh did, benching Alex Smith in favor of Colin Kaepernick. Well, Carroll did something like that too. And actually, you could argue Carroll's decision was a little gutsier because it was in training camp. Really sight unseen. Benching Matt Flynn. Just signed in on a big free agent contract for this rookie, Russell Wilson from Wisconsin. And that offense has improved as the year has progressed. Exactly what you want to see. They've put up 50 plus points in two consecutive weeks. I mean, hey, going with Wilson over Flynn was a ballsy move. And that's what you need to do to win. You win by thinking big. And Pete Carroll for all of my criticisms against him, has thought big this season. We knew he could coach defense. 
and he certainly coached that defense up. Second best defense in the league behind the Niners. But what Carroll has done with the offense is what really impresses me this season. Because it would have been very easy for him to go into the year knowing he has a weapon in Marshawn Lynch and just be a conservative. Handing it to Lynch 25-30 times per game and they hand it off to Lynch plenty. I'm not saying that Lynch isn't a big part of the offense. He most certainly is. But Carroll recognized you need that other dimension or dimensions. And he has that with Wilson's big arm, Wilson's ability to run himself. Ran for three touchdowns last week in their, in their big win against uh, Buffalo. Carroll recognized you need to have a multifaceted offense to win. And I think he deserves a lot of credit for that and the way that offense has evolved this season. And the way Wilson has evolved too. So I look at the other team, the NFC West, and I look at the San Francisco 49ers, and, you know, they really impressed me on Sunday night with the way they beat the Patriots in their own house. The Patriots never lose at home, especially in December. Uh, they beat up the Patriots. It's almost like they won twice, you know. They beat up the Patriots in the first half and then withstood the 28 to nothing run to come back and win. And what, Harbaugh, what most impressed me about Harbaugh and his play calling uh, and his strategy, I should say, last Sunday night was that he took chances. You know, you don't beat the Patriots by heading into Gillette Stadium, setting in the I formation, and handing it off to your running back 30 times to run into Vince Wilfork. That's not how you beat the Patriots at Gillette Stadium because almost regardless of how good your defense is, the Patriots are going to get their 30 or they're going to come close. And the Patriots played maybe the worst half of football they've played, not just all season, but in years against the Niners on Sunday night. It carried over into the beginning of the third quarter. But then the Patriots went on their run. They went on their 28 to nothing run, tied the game up at 31 apiece. The Patriots are going to get their 30, almost regardless of how good your defense is. So you have to find a way to get up there too. You have to find a way to match the Patriots point for point. And how you do that is by spreading it out and letting your quarterback work. And that's what Jim Harbaugh and the Niners did. They spread it out in the pistol formation and the shotgun four wide. And they let Kaepernick throw. They let him make plays. He made plays out of the pocket with his feet. He made plays in the pocket with his arm. Three of the 49ers scoring possessions were just one play. Now, granted, they were set up by turnovers, and the last one was set up by long Michael James kick return. But still, big plays. A big play offense. That's how you beat the Patriots. And that's what the Niners did on Sunday night at Gillette Stadium. I've been a Kaepernick guy all season long. You folks know that. And I think I was proven to be correct on Sunday. You know, Kaepernick is more of a difference maker at quarterback than Alex Smith is. And you need a difference maker at quarterback to win at the highest level in today's NFL. And that's what the goal is for the Niners. And that's what they have, a quarterback who can be a difference maker. Because he's allowed to be a difference maker by Harbaugh and the schemes that Niners coaching staff draw up. So look over to the AFC playoff picture. And as I said, much less convoluted than the NFC, so this won't take as much time. The only spot that's really up for grabs is that final wild card. The Steelers are still in control, have a big game against the Bengals this week. Uh, I think the biggest key for Pittsburgh is the injury report and whether star cornerback Ike Taylor can take the field. 
Because if Taylor sits out and the Steelers' secondary has been ravaged with injuries, Paul Malu is back, but the cornerbacks, they were down to their fifth, sixth guys on the depth chart against Dallas last week. Um, if Ike Taylor doesn't return, the Steelers won't have an answer for A.J. Green, which would be a major problem for them. Um, that said, though, and as this recording, we don't know Taylor's status for the game, I still like Pittsburgh on Sunday. I do. And again, this is... Maybe what we talked about the Giants and Falcons, you know, looking at past performance a little more than current performance, but I still like the Steelers to come out with that big win on Sunday because I'm a big fan of Ben Roethlisberger in these kind of situations. And, you know, Roethlisberger didn't bathe himself in glory this week, you know, criticizing, subtly criticizing his offensive coordinator in the press, and that's a poor move on his part, you know, never, you never hear Tom Brady or Peyton Manning or Aaron Rodgers do that, I mean, they're truly elite quarterbacks in the league, don't throw their offensive coordinators, even subtly so, under the bus, they, they just don't do that, so Roethlisberger proved to me he's not up in that class, but I mean, you saw the play he made in that game against Dallas, the touchdown he threw to Heath Miller, that 60-yard TD pass, uh, like a pinball, like bouncing off a million guys. No one can bring him down. Uh, he's a great playmaker. And, you know, I think that Steelers defense, you get Troy Palmalu, James Harrison, Lamar Woodley, especially if Ike Taylor's back, I think they'll come up with the big stops when they need to come up with the big stops. And I just feel like they'll make enough plays to win. I know that's kind of cliche-driven analysis, but sometimes I think cliches are correct. Um, <laughs> you look at the Ravens, though. They lost big to the Broncos on Sunday, and yet because the Steelers lost, they clinched a playoff berth. Talk about backing into the postseason, huh? Now, the Ravens close out playing the Giants and Bengals. They could very well end the year on a five-game losing streak and they were really a fourth and 29 away from losing to San Diego a month ago as well. So they should be, they should have lost that game too. And the week before that, if you remember, they didn't score an offensive touchdown and their win against the Steelers in mid-November when the Steelers were playing without Roethlisberger, when uh, Byron Leftwich was under center for them there. So, I mean, talk about backing into the playoffs. Now, we're going on a month and a half where the Ravens have not played any semblance of, hell, even respectable football. Uh, and you look at the defense, the defense has been hit hard by injuries. Ladarius Webb out, Ray Lewis out, Terrell Suggs is playing, but he's playing with one arm. Uh, the defense is average now. It's not horrible, but it's not elite with these injuries and how they're working a lot of young guys in. It takes time to rebuild it. So the Ravens' defense is now average. So what they need with an average defense is for the offense to step up. and. The offense is incapable of doing it because of who they have a quarterback. And, you know, there are a lot of players who I've said a lot about them all year. And I just can't say anymore. Joe Flacco was one of those guys. You know, I just can't say it anymore how he's not a Super Bowl winning quarterback. I mean, you look at the Broncos and Ravens game last week. The Broncos are up 10-0 second quarter. The Ravens are driving. They're at home, have the great home field advantage on their side. And there they are on the goal line. If they get a score, they head into half, it's only 10-7, boom, they're right back in this game. But no, Flacco instead lobs the throw to Anquan Bolden, Chris Harris intercepts it, jumps the route, reads Flacco, it's a little lob to Bolden, Harris intercepts it, and returns it 98 yards for a touchdown, then at that point, instead of 10-7, it's 17-0 entering the half, 
Ravens are completely demoralized. Game over. You know, you look at Falco's number, Flacco's numbers. 20 for 40. Really? 50% completions in that game. Uh, against Houston in Week 7, Flacco had a 45.4 quarterback rating. 45.4! In the big regular season games this year against Houston and Denver, Flacco hasn't showed up. He just hasn't. And remember, they changed their offensive coordinator last week, but they have to change their quarterback. Flacco's contract is up at the end of the season. He should be gone. And if the Ravens have to take a step back, so be it. Because they will never, ever be at a Super Bowl level with Flacco at quarterback, especially now that the defense has regressed and the offense has to take center stage. It's just not going to happen with that guy, Joe Flacco, under center. And you saw it in his pitiful, in his pitiful performance last Sunday against the Broncos. So the Texans, Broncos, and Patriots are the top three seeds in the AFC. That's not completely locked in yet. The Patriots still have an outside shot at the second seed in that first round bye. But I don't think it's going to happen. Denver closes out playing Cleveland and Kansas City at home. Two crap bag teams. No chance. I mean, any given Sunday, but the way the Broncos have been playing, I have a hard time believing they're going to drop games to the Browns and the Chiefs in the final two weeks of the season. So the Patriots, with their loss against San Francisco, are locked into that third seed, which means they have to play wild card weekend. And, you know, this is a big debate in NFL circles, and I'm sure we'll talk about it in two weeks entering wild card weekend, how big that first round bye is. I still think it's pretty significant. I know the Giants have won two Super Bowls playing on Wild Card Weekend. I know all that. But there's no debating it. It's an easier road, you know, with that first round bye. Because you look at the Patriots, for example, who let's say they're the third seed. Their road could conceivably be a game at home against Pittsburgh, then traveling to Denver, and then going to Houston. Now, individually... If I'm a Patriots fan, neither of those games scare me. You know, I like the Patriots in all of those games. I do. I think the Patriots should be favored in all of those games. But it all adds up. I mean, Pittsburgh is not a cupcake. That is a tough, tough first-round matchup. So if I were a Patriot fan, I'd be rooting my tail off for Cincinnati this week versus the Steelers. That is a really tough draw. Wild card weekend, especially if that Steelers defense is even close to healthy. And then you go at Denver. I think the Denver's defense can't stop the Patriot offense, but can the Patriot defense stop the Denver offense? I'm not sure of that with the way Manning's played. And we saw on Sunday that Patriot secondary is still a major weakness. And then at Houston in the AFC title game, that's a tough game. Especially after you went played Pittsburgh, went at Denver, it's a tougher road. Without that first round bye. And, you know, what did we learn from the Patriots' perspective with their loss against the Niners on Sunday? Well, I think the Niners showed that you can still outmuscle the Patriots. I mean, it's, it's, here's the key to being the Patriots. And it's far easier said than done. And few teams can do it. But the Niners are one of those teams. Like the Giants in the two Super Bowls, the 49ers were able to generate pressure on Tom Brady without blitzing which allowed everybody else to drop back in coverage. Alden Smith, Justin Smith while he was in the game, 
those guys wreaked havoc on the Patriots offensive line for most of the game, which allowed everyone else on the Niners to drop back in coverage. Navarro Bowman, Patrick Willis were very good in coverage on Sunday night. So that's the key. Generate pressure on Brady without blitzing, which allows everybody else to back drop back in coverage, jam the Patriot receivers at the line. That's the key to beating the Patriots. And you look at some other concerns from the Patriots' perspective. These young running backs, Stephen Ridley, Shane Vereen, are now integral parts of the offense, especially Ridley. And they have trouble taking care of the football. I mean, Ridley lost the ball twice. One of them wasn't a fumble. One of them was. But he's lost the ball now for a couple of weeks. That's a big concern. You know, and if you're the Patriots, if you're Bill Belichick, that's the last thing you want to happen. You know, you have Tom Brady, the best quarterback in the game, arguably, on your team. And for a running back to lose the football and lose possession and take the ball out of Brady's hands just absolutely kills you. If you're a Belichick or a coach on the page, it kills you for a running back to take the ball out of Brady's hands like that. So that's a major concern. And Ridley, Vereen are untested against big physical defenses in big time games. Uh, Aaron Hernandez, to me, is a bit of a finesse player. Now, he did get popped by Deshaun Goldson at midfield. Then the Patriots went back to him the very next play on a screen pass, and he wanted no part of that. Alden Smith easily just kind of ripped the ball out of his hands for the interception. I'm not sure if that was a great decision to go back to Hernandez after he got popped at midfield by Goldson, but Hernandez is definitely a finesse player. Can he stand up to Navarro Bowman, to Alden Smith, to Patrick Willis? I don't think so. I mean, Rob Gronkowski would have made a huge difference in that game. The Patriots missed Gronkowski from a blocking perspective and certainly also from a pass-catching perspective as well. And, you know, the weather was tough. It was cold. It was freezing rain in the mid-30s. And that's the kind of weather this Patriot team used to win. They used to always win in that weather. And now, not so much. They are more of a finesse team. They're akin almost to the Colts teams from the middle portion of of this uh, decade, you know, 05, 06, 07, that's what the Patriots are now, and it's still possible to outmuscle them, and the Niners certainly did that on Sunday, so if I were a Patriot fan, I would be concerned about that, you know, that you can still get outmuscled, and the Niners did it on Sunday. Um, I give the Patriots immense credit for not quitting. I mean, look, in that 28 to nothing run, Brady did some of the best quarterbacking I've ever seen, and you can't sweep that under the rug either. I mean, the Texans the week before packed it up and went home. They wanted no part of that game in the second half. And the Patriots did not quit. They made a 28-0 run, tied it up at 31, but then they allowed the big kick return by Michael James. Colin Kaepernick found Michael Crabtree. Kyle Arrington on the outside uh, did a terrible job covering Crabtree and couldn't bring him down, missed the tackle entirely. Um, so, you know, 49ers made more plays to win. It's as simple as that. Um, but, you know, I think for the Patriots, the two concerns out of that game is, number one, their secondary can still be split apart. That's a problem. And, you know, the Niners spread it out. They didn't just run in the I formation. They spread it out and made the linebackers cover, really spread out that secondary. And the Patriots' defense wasn't up to, wasn't up to the task for the most part. And number two, the other big takeaway is, uh, the Patriots were overpowered in that game. That's that's my biggest takeaway. They were overpowered by that game. They were beat up on their home field. 
in supposedly Patriot weather. 35 degrees, freezing rain, driving wind. Mm. But the Niners were more ready to play that style of game than the Patriots were. Um, okay, so if you're a Patriot fan listening to this, I do have something to make you feel a little better. The Jets suck. Oh my goodness, do they suck. I couldn't stop laughing after that game on Monday night. Seriously. I mean, what was funnier? Sanchez Sanchez, throwing his fourth interception in the game late in the fourth quarter in the red zone. His second three, three or more interception game, by the way, in three weeks. But then after that, the Titans go three and out. You know, Mike Munchak wants no part of, no, doesn't want to give Jake Locker the ball deep in his own territory. So they hand it off to the fullback and, okay, run up the middle three times. So, the, the Titans want no part of the, the that, want, want no part of the ball there, so they do a quick three and out. Then the punter, this this punter, kicks a 19-yard punt. Ball goes off the side of his foot. Jets get the ball inside the 30, close to 50 seconds to play. Oh my God, they have life. Even after four interceptions from Sanchez, a horrible interception in the red zone where Sanchez just faces the pressure. I've never seen a quarterback face pressure worse than Sanchez. Pocket collapsing, has no idea what to do. Launches a prayer off his back. Felt like his eyes were closed. He was throwing it right to the arms of Michael Griffin, who uh, intercepted two Sanchez Aaron throws on Monday night. Uh, but the Jets get the ball back. Inside the 30. Close to 50 seconds to play. Here we go. Gang Green going to pull it out. Remain alive in the AFC playoff picture. Sanchez in the shotgun. Pro Bowl center Nick Mangold with the snap. And Sanchez drops the ball, drops it, drops the snap. Game over. As Mike Tirico said, the Jets season ends ugly and with a loss. And you look at some of these stats on Sanchez. He's turned the ball over 50 times over the past two seasons. The Patriots as a team have turned the ball over 41 times over the past Three seasons. Think of that. It's obvious. Sanchez is not giving the Jets a chance to win. He's regressed. It's not an NFL caliber offense. And the whole roster is flawed. They mismanaged the cap and failed to develop secondary pieces. Santonio Holmes goes down. You have nobody to fill in for him. Darrell Rivas goes down. You really have nobody to fill in for him. You have no depth on that football team. Mike Tannenbaum absolutely has to be the first one to go. And you look at the Sanchez contract. This is via Rich Cermini of ESPN New York. Sanchez's salary cap number for next season is $12.8 If the Jets cut him, Cermini writes, they will incur a crippling $17.1 million cap charge in 2013. That bloated charge would include Sanchez's $8.25 million salary guarantee, there is no offset in the contract, meaning the Jets are on the hook for the entire salary, regardless of how much he receives from another team. Now, there is a way around that. The Jets could designate Sanchez as a June 1st cut. That would spread the cap charge over two seasons, $12.35 million in 2013 and $4.8 million in 2014. Samini says, bottom line, he's uncuttable. If the Jets trade Sanchez, they get hit with an $8.9 million cap charge in 2013. Um... Of course, the $8.25 million guarantee Sanchez has. Uh, so, you know, you look at that, it's a horrific contract. And that contract alone should be a fireable offense. 
regardless of anything else on the roster. And the rest of the roster is a mess, too. But, you know, if I'm the Jets, I'm sorry. You still have to cut him. Bite the bullet. Take the cap it. You got to cut Sanchez. Got to cut him. Because he's not going to play QB for you anyway. So just having him sit there on the bench will create an unneeded distraction. Cut him. Get rid of him. Cut him in June. Designate him as a June 1st cut. Take the $12 million hit in 2013. It's only a $4.8 million hit in 2014. Do it. Teams do it. Routinely. They survive. You'll survive for a year. You got to do it. You cannot have Mark Sanchez play quarterback for you anymore. You can't have him around that team anymore. You're going to eat the money anyway, regardless of what you do. So cut him. Cut bait. Get rid of him. So the question comes to Rex Ryan. What do the Jets have to do to fix this? We'll talk about this at length in the offseason. And I know people are sick of the Jets. And you listen to ESPN commentators and the venom they were spewing at the Jets after the game Monday night. You know, is because I think a lot of people are pissed off, you know, working in the football media. Guys who played the game, loved the game, had to continually talk about this Jets team, this garbage Jets team. Why? Because of Tim Tebow? Really? So it's a lot of venom speed at the Jets, and they understand it. That's why I'm not basing the show around this. But, you know, what do they do this offseason? They need to hire a football liaison. They need to hire somebody to take control of the football operations portion of that franchise. Uh, Bill Polian is 70 now. I don't know if he still has his fastball, but if he does, he'd be perfect. He's built Super Bowl winners in Buffalo, Carolina, and Indianapolis. He already hates the Patriots. You don't have to worry about that. Polian, to me, would be perfect. Maybe Bill Parcells wants to return. I don't know. Somebody like that. You need a football liaison. After that person is in place, he has to decide what to do with Sanchez. And Sanchez has to go. I don't think there's any question about that. So then it comes down to the coach. What do you do with the head coach? I'm split on this. I can see both arguments. Rex Ryan has done some good things there. He did take this team to two consecutive AFC Championship games. I think his players on the defensive side of the ball still enjoy playing for him. I think Rex Ryan can still coach defense. I, I, I don't care about the talking. That's not the issue here. I think there are more than one ways to skin a cat. You know, I think Ryan's style can work fine if he has a capable team. He doesn't have a capable team right now. Um, but if you keep Rex Ryan... You have to hire an offensive guru. Maybe that's Norv Turner. Maybe it's somebody else. I don't know. But it's clear. Rex Ryan is incapable of coaching offense. And that, to me, would be the fireable offense. The fact that Mark Sanchez has regressed over these past four years under Ryan. And the offense has deteriorated to such a point that it's not even close to an NFL caliber offense. Tony Sperano is not the answer. You need an offensive guru to run that offense. I mean, really, if you keep Ryan as head coach and, you know, keep Sperano or hire some other clown to be an offensive coordinator, do you really want to hand that group a guy like Matt Barkley, assuming he falls to the Jets in the draft? I mean, do you really want to trust Rex Ryan with another quarterback? Oh my God, I'd be scared to death. You know, I mean, a guy like Chip Kelly. Maybe the Jets look to him. I know he's unproven in the NFL, but that Oregon offense, it's already implemented across the league. You know, that's what you need. Andy Reid. You know, I don't think Andy Reid's a genius, but he's an offensive-minded guy who'll be looking for work. Uh, you know, bottom line, to me, if you fire Rex Ryan, 
you fire him because you have to completely change direction. And I'm not talking about the talking. I'm talking about the fact the man cannot coach offense, which you need to coach to win in today's NFL. I mean, that is not an NFL caliber offense. And what they do with Tebow has been beyond dumb this season. Tebow is not dynamic. Opposite of dynamic. He comes in and runs up the middle. Whoa! I mean, you want dynamic? Look at Colin Kaepernick and what he did Sunday night. Look at Robert Griffin. Look at Russell Wilson. Look what Andrew Luck can do. Those guys are dynamic. Tim Tebow running up the middle for a yard on third and short is not dynamic. It's been a disaster there this season. Tannenbaum has to go. Sanchez has to go. You take the cap hit. I can see both ways with Rex Ryan, but one thing is for certain. They need to completely change that offensive direction of the team. They either need an offensive expert, assistant coach beside Ryan, or they need an offensive guy in there. Because that is not an NFL caliber offense. It's embarrassing. It really is. And I have nothing left to say on the Jets until this offseason. No, we will not do the Greg McElroy, Tim Tebow debate for week 16 and 17. Who cares? Neither of them will be around next season. So, we're done on the Jets until this offseason. I promise. Second down segment. We take a look at the biggest off-field NFL story of the past week. And this week, it's Josh Brent in the Dallas Cowboys. Of course, know the story. Brent killed teammate Jerry Brown in a drunk driving accident a couple of weeks ago. Brent was on the Dallas sidelines for their win against Pittsburgh last week. Many criticized the Cowboys for this decision. The Cowboys have since decided to ban Brent from the sidelines for future games. Now, on the surface, it's very easy to lash into the Cowboys for this. But then you look a little deeper. And you look at how Brown's mother said at her son's Jerry's memorial service that she still loves Brent, <laughs> excuse me, and wants to see the Cowboys look out for him. So, Brown's mother doesn't have the venom towards Brent that a lot of people who are unaffected by it do. So, you take that into account. And also, you look at the fact that Brent made a mistake, a horrible mistake. And this is his second DUI. He got one in Illinois. So clearly, he deserves to face harsh, harsh penalties. And he will. But he's still a member of the Dallas Cowboys. He still has teammates. And he still has support for many within the Cowboys organization. And also, we forgive in the NFL. I live in Metro Boston, so I hear a lot of Patriots fans talk, and many were saying this week, oh, and the Patriots, we would never welcome back a guy like Brent. Really? How about Dante Stallworth? He was heralded by Patriots fans just two weeks ago when he caught that touchdown pass against Houston on Monday night. Stallworth, of course, killed a pedestrian in a drunk driving accident. So we forgive in the NFL, and we forgive rather quickly. The Cowboys were wrong. It looks bad. You can't have Brent on the sidelines. Hooting and hollering with his teammates. I agree. Bad decision. Bad PR move. Poorly managed. All I'm saying, though, is this is a bit of a deeper situation than some are making it out to be. It's multi-layered. 
Heading into our third down segment, it's the Big Up Slowdown. I say a statement and then express my agreement or disagreement with it by saying Big Up or Slowdown. Big Up or Slowdown number one, Roger Goodell. Coincidentally, the day after the Bounty Gate player suspensions were vacated, announced he's considering expanding the playoffs to 14 or 16 teams. Big Up or Slowdown, this new playoff format would be a good idea. Slow down. An emphatic slow down. This would completely water down the regular season and allow mediocrity to reign supreme. The system is perfect now. Because with the first round buys, which would be eliminated if the playoffs were expanded like this, great teams have something to play for in the final weeks of the season. If the first round buy didn't exist for the top seeds, Think of it. A team like the Texans or Falcons or the Packers or the Patriots, teams like those, 49ers, wouldn't have played a meaningful game since October. Really, think of that. So I love the first round bye because it makes the top teams in the league who are locked into the playoffs from, you know, week seven onwards. It still gives them an incentive to play the final weeks because of how big that buy is. But something is coming here. Something is coming down the pike because, of course, in the NFL, you know, the status quo isn't good enough. We need to expand, 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 make more money, make more money. Expand on our billions. And the only way the league is going to expand its revenues is to expand its product. The players won't allow the owners to go to an 18-game regular season. So what's the next step? Well, how about expanding the playoff package? Sell it to Turner or NBC Sports for a couple billion dollars and boom. You have yourself expanded revenues. Something is coming. You know, the owners want to expand revenues. The only way to do that is to expand, pro is to expand the product. They're not going to go to 18 games. So what's maybe the next logical thing? Create a new playoff TV package. You can sell off to a company for multi for several billion dollars. So be on the lookout. This is not just Goodell throwing something out there. No, this is a very serious proposal. Now Packers receiver Greg Jennings said on the Dan Patrick show yesterday, Tuesday, he wants to see Adrian Peterson Break Eric Dickerson's single-season rushing record of 2,105 yards. Peterson is only 294 yards away from the record and has two games left on the season. The Vikings play the Packers in Week 17, so Peterson could break the record against Jennings' Packers. Big up or slow down? Is it cool that Greg Jennings said this? I'm going to say big up here. It is. You know, and I had to get the Peterson talk somewhere because I'm not discounting what he's doing. And I talked to this with Shalise Mans Young of the Boston Globe last week. I just find it dull. This I don't watch sports for individual achievement. I watch it for the team. So MVP talk, single season record talk, especially in football, I just I'm just bored by it. I really am. But I'm not discounting Peterson. What a remarkable year he's had. Best year a running back has ever had. And he even missed a game this year. If you can believe that he sat out a game. So he could break the single-season rushing record by only playing 15 games. Unreal. But yeah, I'm fine that Jennings said this. It's fine to appreciate greatness. In fact, I would want players across the league to appreciate greatness like this. 
And the fact of the matter is, is just further proof that these players don't hate each other like we think they do. Get over it. So big up. I don't have a problem with Jennings saying what he said. No problem with him appreciating the greatness that is Adrian Peterson. Now, Lions head coach Jim Schwartz, after a 38-10 loss to the Cardinals last week, said the Lions' season has gone off the rails. Now, we know about North Turner and Andy Reid on the hot seat, but Jim Schwartz, does he deserve to be fired as well? Big up or slow down? Big up. He does. Last year, the Lions did make the playoffs, but they bowed out in the first round because their inability to play defense, which is funny because Schwartz, I thought, was a defensive guy, but nonetheless. This season, they've gone 4-10. and ten. Last year's playoff run is a distant memory. And the thing to me is the team hasn't regressed on the, only on the field. They've regressed off the field, too. You know, Schwartz comes from the Titans, and they've picked up a lot of character issue guys over the years. And Schwartz tried to implement that similar system in Detroit, and it just hasn't worked. You know, guys from Nick Farley to Titus Young just do not get it. Uh, Sue, the gum to Sue, punk, great defensive tackle, but a punk, really, and still hasn't matured, at least all that much. So... A lot of these guys don't get it. Schwartz is a lot of bluster, but 4-10 and ten this year. Team didn't improve off the playoff run last year. And you have one of the best receivers of the game in Calvin Johnson, a guy in Matt Stafford who can throw the football with the best of them. You're wasting a lot of talent on this football team. I mean, a gum to Sue may be a punk, but he's a great defensive lineman. And you're wasting a lot of elite talent on this team as well. Their ceiling should be a hell of a lot higher than 4-10. and ten. So yeah, Schwartz does deserve to be fired. Big up. And I don't like to advocate people losing their jobs, but still, big up. I don't think I don't think Schwartz has done much to warrant coming back for another season. I'll put it like that. Heading up to our fourth down segment, closing out the show with the Reamer rant. And, you know, I'm not going to spend a lot of time replaying the Rob Parker nonsense from last week. You're all familiar with the story by now. Questioning Robert Griffin's blackness, wondering if he's down for the cause. And especially given the recent events in the world, it just seems so trivial to look at this like some big picture topic. But, you know, I do have some thoughts on it. And, you know, really, when I look at this, I get what Parker was trying to do. You know, he was trying to be provocative, which is what ESPN wants the content on First Take to be. I mean, race... Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't religiously watch First Take, and if you do, I'm sorry. I don't know why you would put yourself through that. But race seems to be a subcurrent of the show. You know, it's a theme of the show. Skip Bayless always debates with a minority coast. He likes to have the black perspective. So race is a subcurrent. It's a theme of the show. So we understand what Parker was trying to do. You know, he sees... Stephen A. Smith, Skip Bayless, provocateurs, how much they've moved up within the company. He says, hey, I'm going to stir the pot a little too. That's what they want me to do, and the producers want him to do that. I mean, they rehearse these shows. First Take is heavily rehearsed. Of course it is. Nothing spontaneous there. Nothing is spontaneous on ESPN. The producers knew what Parker was going to say, and they were fine with him saying it. They only suspended Parker after the backlash, which to me is weaselly. You know, I mean, if you had a problem with it, you should have said it to him in the pre-production meeting. Not, you know, stick your finger in the air, seeing which way the wind is blowing and reacting that way. That's Weasley, and I feel for Parker in that respect. But, I mean, there's no defending what he said here. In the year 2010, 
questioning someone's blackness, as Parker did with Robert Griffin, isn't provocative. No. It's cheap. It's really cheap. And that was Parker's biggest miscalculation. You know, I mean, Parker's 48. You know, he grew up in, in an era where this kind of stuff was a big deal. You know, a black quarterback to a man in his late 40s, early 50s is a big was a big deal. A black head coach was a big deal. Now, we don't think twice about it. I mean, to anybody under 30, and I include myself in this, I'm 20 years old, the black QB topic induces a yawn. Oh, it's boring. It's irrelevant, I would say. Black QB, black head coach, it's all irrelevant. It's not a provocative topic anymore. It's a cheap topic. And I'm not saying race is off the table. It certainly remains a significant theme in our society, a significant theme in our sporting society, and should be discussed. But determining someone's blackness, which to Parker apparently doesn't include having a white fiancé, being college-educated, or, gas being a Republican, ooh. And that's pretty much as racist a thing as you can say. Really. I mean, what? Parker said Griffin isn't down with the cause. Really? To me... Robert Griffin is doing more for the cause than Rob Parker, who sits there on TV relying on the cheap topic of determining blackness in a black quarterback in an effort to be as provocative as Skip Bayless is, you know, trying to be a poor man's Bayless. The fact that Parker was so universally condemned for his comments so shows just how far we have come. Blackness is nothing more than a skin color. It's not a description for how somebody should act. And it certainly is not a provocative topic for debate. It's a cheap topic for debate. And Rob Parker learned that the hard way last week. A very long show this week, but as I mentioned at the opening... I will be off next week due to the holiday, so figured I'd give you close to an hour of Football Nation today this week. Again, no show next week. We'll be back at it in two weeks on Wednesday, January 2nd, 2013. Looking ahead to wildcard weekend. I am beyond excited for the show in two weeks. Have a happy holiday, everybody. As always, if you want to get in touch with me, I'll be answering my email, areamer at bu.edu. Also, feel free to follow me on Twitter. AlexStreamer1 is my Twitter name. Also, feel free to leave a comment on the show page here on footballnation.com. So long, everybody. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you in two weeks on Wednesday, January 2nd. Enjoy your holiday and enjoy your new year. Talk in just two weeks, Wednesday, January 2nd, for a wildcard weekend. Cannot wait.